0: Hey, we are in the book of Colossians. We've been walking through this entire summer series through the little epistle of Colossians. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 4. Lord willing, we have two more messages in the book of Colossians. This is our penultimate one. I don't know if you've ever met an actual professional football player. When they're on the field or when you see them either on TV or from a distance in the stadium, they you know that they're sort of biggish, but you don't really understand how gargantuan they are until you meet one in person and he wraps that ham hock of a roast beef of a hand around yours and shake it. And you just kind of go, wow, that is a size 22 sneaker and a size 52 hand. They're just so big, and they're kind of rare, and you lose a little bit of your perspective when you see them from a distance or when you see them, you know, with a whole bunch of other people that same size. I would contend that ever increasingly, it is that way with gospel-soaked Christians. I think we are aware of some folks that are loving Jesus, that are Christians, but those those rare breeds that you just, you, you just finally get close to them and there's a spiritual gravity where you go, wow, wow, that person just is a spiritual giant. Now they may not be impressive outwardly or by appearances, but you just know, wow, that is an impressive individual. And as it turns out, that's actually what God wants to do in the world. That is God's purpose. That is God's plan. I I wish, and God wishes, and we all need more and more of those kinds of people in the world today. But candidly, most of us spend a whole lot of our thought life, a lot of our flickering pixel life, just wishing that God would do more, to make things nicer and better, that God would finally just get gas prices back down where I think they should be. Come on, God, get on the stick, right? Or come on, God, would you just mute all the people who disagree with me socially, politically, culturally? That would make everything just better. It's interesting, God doesn't do that. God has a different plan. Maybe that God would put a stop All of the violence, all the disease, all the pain, all the death in the world. Interestingly, God does not do that in this age. Now, as it turns out, in his wisdom, God works through the gospel. In the midst of all those brokennesses, all those badnesses, God continues to work individual by individual, relationship by relationship through the gospel. What he really wants is billions of little instances of the gospel Walking around, demonstrating the glory, the grace, the mercy of God himself. And so that leads us to our big idea from this morning in Colossians 4. It goes very simply like this. Be the gospel. There's your exhortation. There's your imperative. There's your instruction. There's your admonition and your encouragement. Be the gospel the gospel. Now, how can I say that? Because at this church and at this campus, we say this all the time, hopefully at least several times a week, the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now, I want you to pair those definitions with what I just invited you to do, which was to be the gospel, the the personification, the embodiment, the personality of what it looks like, for a person to walk around because of the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now, increasingly, if we made that our goal, a whole lot of things would change in our families, and in our individual lives, in our church, in our community. Now, we're going to borrow from this book of Colossians to help us understand more precisely, more practically, how to be the gospel. We are in this book of Colossians, the theme of which is the supremacy of Christ. Since Jesus is preeminent, since he is primary, since he is principal, since he is supreme, that sort of settles every other issue. The one who has given us, who is himself the gospel, now calls us to be. And so one of the very practical outworkings of the book of Colossians is confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. So it's not a place when we come to church for us to debate this issue or that ruling or that situation or those circumstances. It's to go, well, hold on a second. Jesus is king, and he just so happens to be a death-proof king who loves me and is for me, who loves us and is for us. So if we were all being the gospel, a whole lot of those tensions and opportunities for consternation would actually be obliterated and evaporated. So that brings us at long last to Colossians chapter four. I'm gonna begin reading in verse two. How are we to be the gospel? Colossians chapter four, beginning in verse two. Paul says, continue steadfastly. Some of your translations might say, be devoted or devote yourself. I like all those translations. They're all correct. It it carries with it this intentionality, this volitionality, this doing the hard work in advance to plan and program and purpose to prayer. What we're gonna see in these little five verses that Ashton's already read for us, how do you be the gospel? Three categories, prayer, Conduct and speech. Prayer, conduct, and speech. Paul says here in verse 2, continue steadfastly or be devoted in prayer. Look, here's Seminary 101, okay? Here's here's what they tell you in in seminary. Look, you get up to preach, and you're shaking, and you don't know what to say, and people are staring back at you, and you're supposed to have some wisdom because you know how to read the Bible. When in doubt, simply tell your people this. Read your Bibles and pray more, and then pray and go home. It's kind of what this feels like. like the, the lesson, obviously, is just going to be you should pray, and that's true. But I want to break that down. This is the Apostle Paul sitting in Rome in his first arrest in Rome, under house arrest at his own expense. He's never been to Colossae. He doesn't know these people, but he's gotten a report from Pastor Epaphras that things are beginning to get shaky. They're getting infiltrated and influenced by some false teachers. And so Paul says, hey, here's what you do. You find all those voices and you just beat them with a sock full of wood screws till they leave. No, it's not what he says at all, ever. He says, You continue steadfastly that idea of intentionally, volitionally, not grumbling nor burden, but continue. He assumes that all Christians are praying. So be devoted to new Christians. How do you be the gospel? Well, it starts with prayer. Continue praying. We generally in the West don't like praying. It's been said that prayer is the breath of faith. Let me say that again. Prayer is the breath of faith. Just as breathing is crucial for physical fitness, prayer is crucial for spiritual fitness. But most of us don't believe that. And so when, not if, when we fail in prayer, it is because we fail in faith. It's okay, this is a safe place, you can admit that. You already know that about yourself, I know that about myself, and so we can know that about ourselves. Aside from my mom and Jim Phillips, nobody is praying enough. But Jim, pipe down, that's enough. You're wearing the Lord out, enough. None of the rest of us are praying adequately because We like to fix things. We want to see immediate impact and results. And we want to feel like we're little sovereigns. There's a problem. Yo, I'll solve it. And then we move on. But prayer is the hardest work of the Christian. And it is the most important and the most impactful and the most influential if we really believed the gospel. That I am redeemed to God in Christ and to one another. And so am I actually setting aside time to pray? Not out of obligation and legalism. Oh my God, no. I get to approach the throne of God's grace with boldness and confidence as though I actually belong because I do. This Philistine enemy of God from the Old Testament, this person from the 21st century who has no place, no proximity to the sovereign, good, holy God of the cosmos is invited in to have conversation. Now, does it have to be in King James and rhyme? No, no. But it also doesn't have to be a complete, just casual smacking while I eat, chewing my gum kind of thing. There is a relationship. There is a conversation where I'm speaking, but I'm also listening I'm speaking, but I'm also listening. Paul says, continue steadfastly. You get the impression, reading the book of Acts and all 13 of Paul's letter, that he was either teaching or praying or teaching about prayer his entire life. Always, why, why, why? Well, he had an advantage, let's be clear. He had actually seen and been with the actual risen Lord Jesus. Now that'll change you. You and I more than likely have not. So he has a bit of an advantage there to not spend time in prayer with this King Jesus that he had known, been with, walked with, spoken with. It would have been ludicrous for him to not spend time in prayer. And so the scriptures have to remind us over and over and over again, you must be in prayer. Now, he gives us three very quick little words telling us what this prayer is. If we are to be the gospel that happens in prayer and in conduct and speech, we need to talk about prayer very, very quickly. Continue steadfastly in prayer. So steadfastly is how we want to continue. We are to be watchful. Your translation might say alert. Be watchful. Be alert. Understand that there is a context happening around you. If you pray the exact same six sentences every single time you pray, despite the fact that people around you are going straight to heck in a handbasket, you're not being watchful. You're not being alert. You're not being the gospel and that little sphere of influence that God has placed you in. Pray steadfastly. It's not a burden. It's not a grumble. It's, this is the most important thing I can do and I've been invited to do. And you pray watchfully with alertness, head on a swivel. What's going on? My tendency, this is gonna shock you. I, th- listen, are you all sitting down? You're all sitting good. My tendency is to talk about it before I pray about it. I know, I know, let that process. I, I have a talking thing that I do and never not do. Paul says, no, pray watchfully. Be aware, be understanding, be alert, process. See the world through God's eyes. You're not just praying as though it's some incantation or formula. You are praying, wondering and watching for what is God doing? I want to bring that to the very throne room of God and hold it up before his throne of grace and say, God, I don't know what's going on here but you've got me here seeing this now. In other words, prayer is not a hotel intercom where we mash the button expecting room service. We sometimes think of prayer that way. I'm seeing some of your faces and you're different because you've actually been through a horrible, hard season. And you know that prayer is actually more like a walkie-talkie during wartime where you are staying in constant contact with high command, you need love, wisdom, encouragement, support, and truth. That's how we are to pray. Steadfastly, watchfully, and then this is the greatest. This is so marvelous. Watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's the posture of all of prayer, with thanksgiving. All of life is gratitude. It puts us in the proper posture There is nothing good in me, David says in the Psalms. There is nothing good in me, Paul quotes that in Romans. Anything good I have whatsoever comes to me by God. At my greatest, all I am capable of producing is filthy rags and garbage. So anything that I think is good. I love the smell of rain, praise God. I love a little bit of cloud cover in mid-July. Praise God. I deserve nothing. I am entitled to nothing. And so I live with thanksgiving and gratitude. Or when, not if, when I drift and descend out of thanksgiving, I volitionally seize that back and say, but my God, you love me. You are for me. You love my family. You love my church. You love my community. You love your son, Jesus, and you find me in him. And there is gratitude. But not only that, there's an agency syntax to this grammar. Let me explain. Paul says, every time you pray, you pray with thanksgiving. Now, he unpacks this a little bit further in Philippians 4, but what he means is when you pray for whatever's going on, your own personal health, the relationship that's fractured with a family member, financial dismay, whatever it might be, you pray with thanksgiving. It's more granular than you might even think. It is you pray thanking God for every conceivable outcome. And it takes time. And you might not be as productive otherwise. You'll never be more kingdom productive than when you pray and you take the time and the effort to thank God for every conceivable outcome. Lord God, we just got the call from our doctor and the diagnosis is unclear. I thank you for whatever that's going to be discerned to be. Because if it goes that way, you are good. You love me. You're for me. You love that person. I thank you for that. And the opportunities you're going to bring that we can come closer together, that we can share the gospel with those around us, that we can see your hand at work, I thank you. God, should the diagnosis be something different and there's full remission? We thank you for that. We thank you because you're good and we don't deserve that. We don't deserve this life, but while we have it, would you continue to allow us to walk in wisdom? And you pray. Let me just tell you, that is some of the greatest Therapy you can give your mind and your soul in all the world. Just taking the time. By the way, it's also cheaper. Where you just pray, thanking God for every conceivable outcome in your marriage and your parenting. Dealing with your aging parents, with financial situations, health situations. You pray, thanking God for every conceivable outcome. And watch as God does a transformative work in your heart and your mind and your soul and your relationships. See, prayer helps us to be the gospel. Moving on, verse 3. At the same time, he's going to get more specific. Pray also for us. What? This is the apostle Paul. This is Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, and then, just to top it all off, he spends at least three years in the deserts getting direct instruction from the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul says, man, would you pray for us? Now, what comes next is a bit of a shock to me right? At the same time, pray for us. So pray broadly for your individual circumstances and situations. But then Paul says, hey, back here, 200 miles to the west, I, I need you a little church in Colossae that I've never met, but you are my eternal siblings. I need you to pray for us, that God may open to us a door of this prison and I can run out of here like a scalded ape. No, is not what he says. Isn't that amazing? That's how I would be praying. God, get me out of here. Do you not remember that I'm the apostle of the Gentiles? I'm going to write 13 epistles. I'm kind of a big deal. You need to get me out of here. See, Paul already knew. He'd already been in prison in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi and God shook the prison and opened the doors. That's a tip off that God wants you to leave. If God didn't want him in prison, that would be the last place Paul would have been. Paul seems to understand that. That's hard for me. When I'm in a, resistance type of setting, and I'm not feeling like I'm going how I think I should be going. I have to remember, oh, if Jesus wanted to shake the doors and blow me out of here, he would totally do that. Paul says, no, you pray that God may open to us a door for the word. Are you kidding me? This is the apostle Paul. He speaks, people get saved. He wipes his forehead with a handkerchief in the book of Acts. People grab it, they get healed and saved. But Paul understands, again from Acts 16 in Philippi, as he approaches this woman named Lydia, God had already opened the door upon which Paul was knocking. If God doesn't open a door, then it's just noise and gibberish. And so Paul involves this little church in Colossae, pray for us. In the same way we get to pray for what's going on in Sierra Leone, that those little hearts, the doors of those little hearts would be opened, that the truth of the gospel would come in and transform people. That they would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's what Paul wants to do, to be able to continuously declare the mystery of Christ, that a door would be open for that. By the way, that mystery of Christ, just so you know, is on account of which I am in prison. Why is Paul in prison? Because of the mystery of Christ. I need to unpack this super quickly because this is a technical term. Paul on his missionary journeys begins in Acts 13 and 14, and he goes all the way through Galatia. He goes back, starts a second missionary journey. He re-encourages the churches, goes back all the way into Europe. And every time he goes to a new town like Pisidian, Antioch, or Lystra, Iconium, or, or Derbe, or Philippi, or Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue, except for Philippi. And he preaches, he says, you guys, you guys, you guys. Remember the Old Testament? Yeah, we like that stuff. Oh, I do too. It talks about the coming of Messiah. Yeah, we wish he would come. Paul goes, no, let me tell you. He has come. It was Jesus of Nazareth. He lived, he died, he was buried, he's risen again. He's ascended on high. It's Jesus. And they go, hey, that's interesting. Tell us more about that. Paul says, can, will do. He goes away, comes back the following Sabbath. and goes, you guys, remember I was telling you about this Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, which one was he again? Oh, the Messiah. Right. What's going on with him? Well, he's done it. He's the very son of God, and he's human, and he takes away the sin in the world. And not only that, you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, he also includes Gentiles. That's the mystery of Christ, is that he includes Gentiles. And at that, the Jewish leaders would pick up rocks and begin to throw them at Paul's face so much so that he goes back after a second missionary journey. He's in Jerusalem at the temple. There's an Ephesian man named Trophimus who is a Gentile, and they assume that Paul took this Gentile into the temple courts. Paul didn't, and they lose their minds, and they seize on him to kill him. The Romans save him and escort him ultimately all the way to Rome because Paul appeared to Caesar Nero. We find out in Philippians where he also writes this little letter from prison is that even the members of Caesar's household are coming to faith. God knows exactly what he's doing. And so Paul says, please continue to pray that a door would be open where I can declare the mysteries of Christ. Verse four, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now ought is not just ought, it is obligated, it is my requirement, it is my job description that it will be clear whether I'm talking to Emperor Caesar Nero or to one of his guards or some street urchin in the middle of Rome. That I will make it clear. See, let me, let, me, let me help with this. This is one of those many verses that we really understand how to present the gospel. Your job is not to make the gospel relevant. Nothing could possibly be more relevant. It is eternal life. Here and now, not just one day when I expire. Nothing could be more relevant than the gospel. Your job is to make it clear. And that means you have to learn the language and the dialect of your hearer. You have to listen. What are the circumstances? What are the things that God has brought into their life to make them available, susceptible, malleable to the gospel? And then you get to be the gospel. You say, you know, I I don't know about all that, but I got some good news. God has redeemed me to himself and to you in Christ. Let me explain how that works in your language, in your dialect. Paul says that is my obligation, not just well I should. No, no, no. That is my obligation, and that is your, and that is my obligation. And so, for you to be able to do that, well, you, you have to know the gospel. You have to love the gospel. You have to be the gospel. So we've talked about prayer. We've talked about conduct. Verse five is verse is conduct. Walk in wisdom. This walking around. This peripateto. All the aspects and the facets of your life. Walk in wisdom, seeing the world through God's eyes, thinking his thoughts after him, living his life after him, taking his actions after him, that's wisdom. Do the next wise thing. Toward outsiders, does that mean we act like fools to one another inside the church? Well, no, we do that, but that's not the command here. No, 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 no. Your conduct is important Again, back to Act 16. Paul is in Philippi. He's in prison, the Philippian jailer. Paul doesn't walk up to him and say, if you died tonight, would you choose a smoking or (laughs) non-smoking? Paul never does that. He shows him. He demonstrates the gospel. He contextualizes. Despite having been beaten and tortured, Paul stays put because he already has ultimate freedom and if Paul and Silas would have run from that prison, that Philippian soldier would have been killed, and the soldier says, I've never seen honor like this before. He shows him walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That jailer was an outsider. Paul took the opportunity to demonstrate the power of the gospel. Didn't just tell him about it, he showed it. That's how you address someone who is indifferent and disinterested is you show them the glory, the honor, the nobility, and the beauty of the gospel. We've had prayer, now we have conduct. Walking wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. No, 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 no. Buying back the depraved time. Ex zamina. You are the ones, Paul says, to these people in Colossae, and by extension us, 2,000 years later in East Texas, y'all are the ones redeeming the time. Y'all are the ones who are meeting head on, face on, nose to nose, eye to eye. All the little time wasters that strangle out your soul. There is a naturally depraved gravity to our moments. And there are so many things vying and competing for our attentions and our affections that we can wake up, live a full day, go to bed, and never accomplish a single activity in the eternal sense. Paul says, but not you. You're walking in wisdom. You are buying back the bound time from the slave market of sin. The opportunities that God brings across your and my life will probably never repeat again. So be mindful. You have to pray. You have to have correct conduct. Buy back the time. That's who you are. That's what you do. Paul does a very interesting grammar here. He uses this a, 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 kind of participle, part of speech to say, walk in wisdom because you're the ones. You're it. You're the ones that are buying back the time. Jesus could do anything with the raising of an eyebrow. But remember, you're from the future. In this age, time is defined by wasteful many moments. In the coming age, all time will be fully and formally aimed at the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you're from that age, you're from the future, and so you go about your day doing the hard work to plan in advance to the extent that you can. I want to redeem this time and not allow it to be wasted because Lord Jesus you are worth this. And then the outside world sees that and goes, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen anything like that. That's incredible. Verse 6, we've had prayer, we've had conduct. Now verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. I not you hate it when the Bible just stabs you in the face. <laughs> like, hey, Eric, stop talking. Okay, I know, I know. Let your speech always be gracious. Here we have these great two intersections. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, that's not what you think it means. It's not salty like a sailor. No, 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 no. Make it zesty. Make it clear. Make it compelling. Make it so that it actually seemed as though you really do care what you're talking about. Let your speech be gracious. Your speech has to be gracious. Assuming the best. Giving the benefit of the doubt. Listen, listen. There's a whole lost world out there that all they assume of evangelicalism and Christianity is that we're just going to tell them the bad things that they're already doing. Their problem is not a lack of information. Psalms say it. Proverbs say it. Romans says it. God has written his law on every human heart and conscience. They know that some rebel and some revolt. It's not our place necessarily to say, hey, did you know that we think that's sin? They got it. They don't care. Perhaps they got it. But what they are not used to is seeing speech that is gracious, that is zesty, compelling, that is drawing them in. Paul says, you guys out there in Colossae, I know you're getting bombarded with heresies and with false teachings. Speak with grace. That can only come with confidence. That can only come with understanding the gospel so that you will be the gospel. Prayer, speech, or prayer, conduct, and speech. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, God's never going to allow you to just can the gospel and do your ABC track, or whatever, every single time. No, 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 no. You will have prayed. You will have engaged in proper conduct and speech. And God will bring people across your path because you will have been praying, like Paul teaches us, for opportunities in which the mystery of Christ can be declared. Well, what do we do to take away from this? Four very quick implications on these five verses, super quickly. Four summary implications or applications. One goes like this. This life matters. Now, for the observant amongst you, you might recognize, hey, wait a minute, you used that one last week. That's true, because it's still true. This life matters. Hopefully by now we see in Paul's letters and specifically here in Colossians, there's a lot of front-loading in the first half of his epistles followed by a second half that deals with very practical stuff like doing doing that Christ-like stuff while we live. There's a reason we aren't raptured directly into heaven the moment we are converted. That's because heaven, in a sense, is raptured directly into us in this here and now, in this fallen age so that we get to live like that was actually true, like Jesus is living his life in and through me because he is. As General Maximus Decimus Meridius, that great theologian from the movie Gladiator says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. You weren't raptured to heaven when you were saved. You were indwelled by the spirit. You are in Christ. We are to be head on a swivel with our prayer, with our conduct, and our speech because those aspects of our lives are to reflect almost exactly how Jesus would be living his life in you because he is, and to put a really fine point on it. When we talk about prayer and conduct and speech, this is how we be the gospel, I'd like to suggest and to submit, you can succeed at one and totally not emphasize the other two, and you'll be fine. If you will front load and really emphasize your time in prayer, then I can just about guarantee you that your conduct and your speech will flow out of that. If you forego prayer and simply try out of your own jarred awesomeness to manage your conduct and your speech, there's a theological expression we have, and it goes like this. Good luck with that. It starts with prayer. By design, and then from that proximity, from that personal relationship, your speech and your conduct will flow. So be the gospel. Secondly, this is a little bit strange. I'll be very quick on this one. In all the ways that you encounter others in your life, lower the power differential. Lower the power differential. It's a bit strange, but it's right here in our text. I want to apply it to our thinking and our feeling and our everyday relating. All of us have a tendency to, in our fallenness, look for areas or opportunities in which we're stronger than others or superior to them in some way, or at least we think. When we perceive a power differential, we tend to feel confident and good about ourselves, and we engage with our strong right hand, thankful that God has gifted us so generously in this area. Mm -hmm. Problems arise when we engage with our strengths. We often come across as overbearing We're arrogant to those who don't share the same gifts. And so we actually push them away and defeat the entire purpose. Instead, we're to seek opportunities like Paul to demonstrate weakness and need and vulnerability. See what Paul did? I need you, new Christians. I'm the Apostle Paul, but I need you. I am vulnerable. I have need. I need you to pray for me. He raised their bar by lowering his own. It sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus. I'm always reminded of these two oil executives in Dallas who were believers. It can happen. It can actually happen. There's proof. These two oil executives in Dallas, and they were trying to reach some of of the, uh, the cooking staff in their company. There was three ladies from Thailand in particular that would handle a lot of the food service and a lot of the cooking, and they would try to engage these three women from Thailand to give them the gospel or to invite them to church, and it was always super, super awkward. So finally, one of them had the great idea. They asked these three Thai women to teach them, these men, To cook their Thai recipes, and to show that they had absolutely no idea how to cook, and so they would go into the commercial kitchen and they'd start trying to take orders from these Thai women, and the guys would get it wrong, they'd slap their hands and they'd giggle and laugh, and they'd slap their hands and say, "No, you big dumb American!" And they would, they just, but they lowered the power differential and they created an access point. We have a tendency to lead with our strong right hand, Paul lowers his own bar and by so doing raises them and ennobled and dignified them. It's another opportunity to be the gospel. Third point, (laughs) enjoying Christ is the best evangelism. For some of you, I want you to hear nothing else, but I want you to hear that as a shout. Enjoying Christ is the best evangelism. A lot of times Christians are characterized as not having a lot of information about what to do or even more importantly, what not to do. That's kind of how we're known. We we win Bible jeopardy. The problem with the people that live in our world is that they simply don't know. It's not that they don't know right from wrong. Scripture makes it clear that they do. Their struggle is having access to people that actually enjoy the person of Jesus Christ. So too many Christians are simply happy that they're going to heaven one day when they die. But in the meantime, they're just fed up with how broken and bad everything is in this life. Yes, it is. And yet, we are in Christ and dwell by the very spirit of our God. Even in this setting, God could not be closer than he is right now. And then you factor in the truth that we are also surrounded by a bunch of other eternal siblings who are enjoying Christ. This life takes on a different flavor, a salty, zesty, flavor, you might say. We say this around time to time. That's because we really mean it. We want to be very focused and deeply committed to the serious business of Christian fun. It should be a laughing matter a lot of times because enjoying Christ is the best evangelism. That's why we have garden parties and tribute shows and concerts and fellowship meals and things like the dinner table. We would actually enjoy Christ and one another. It's a convicting question. I thought about it this week a lot. Do I really enjoy Jesus Christ? Or am I just glad that I'm not going to hell? Hmm. One of those produces a life of complete vibrance and enthusiasm and that it's attractive and it's compelling. The other mindset produces hardness of heart and hard soul and mind and relationships that looks at the world through bitterness, wondering why everything is so hard. So do you enjoy Christ? Be the gospel. Fourth point. Give your life away. (laughs) You see what Paul's doing? He's totally given his life and he has found it. I could have chosen 10 more takeaways from this little passage, but this is an attempt to bundle it all up in what Paul's saying. If our day in life is spent merely trying to preserve the life that we have, then we'll inevitably lose whatever we think we have. Jesus says that. Instead, we're called to yield over our life to God that loves us and instead be indwelled by His Spirit, found in His Son, and living His presence on earth. It requires a moment-by-moment laying aside of any entitlements. Then, as one of my old heroes in the faith, Dallas Willard, used to say, we get to lay down that old life, that old life that we complain about so bitterly anyway. Give it away. Paul's calling on these Colossian believers to be the walking-around presentation of the gospel. But so long as they are merely accessorizing their lives with the proverbial Jesus fish on the back of their little cart, because they did it back then too, know, they're missing it, and so are we. Instead, Scripture shows us how to make all of our lives spring from the well of Christ in us, us in Him, and the Spirit in each of us, and in, a, in this deal together. The gospel is to flavor and season every single aspect of our lives. If there's still an area of your life where that's not happening, then there's grace for that. Ask someone that you know and love and trust. Where is the gospel not making any difference in my life? Oh, they know. They'll tell you. Let them answer. They're ready. Ask someone. Scripture invites us to submit our prayer, our conduct, and our speech to the gospel. It's the entirety of our inward life, our vertical life, and our horizontal life. All of it. Be the gospel. I also want to encourage you. Jesus gets it done. Jesus is going to get it done. The question is, will we participate personally in what God is doing through the universal reign of Christ in this age? I've already mentioned the book of Acts a few times, but it really is a very interesting conclusion. At the very end of the book of Acts, we find Paul still in prison where he wrote this letter. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. This is how the book of Acts ends. Paul, this is verses uh, 28, verses 30 to 31. Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. (laughs) What an amazing blessing. The prayer of the people of Colossae was answered. Paul said, I need you to pray for me. And they did. Probably unknowingly, unwittingly, God was hearing that, and he was doing precisely what Paul asked for them to pray. God was getting it done. And so when you are praying in your conduct, in your speech, you and I have no idea what all King Jesus is doing in and through it, but he is. So be the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together like this in this place. God, I do pray that you would continue to work in and through your congregation. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is still merely afraid of going to hell one day when they die, would you flood them with the reality of Jesus, that he's lovely, that he's beautiful, that he's best, and they step out of death into life? I invite you to believe if that's you, that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away your sin and replaces it with His righteousness. It's the very best news. And now your life takes on a a sphere of meaning, purpose, influence, and impact. For the rest of us, Father, would you also remind us that this life matters and that we are to be about enjoying Christ through our prayer, our conduct, and our speech. Would you have your way with us, Father? We pray all these things in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen.